Hey, this is Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and you're listening to PF's Tape Recorder. And I've been on that show. It's a good show, I think. I have to, I'm still figuring out how to listen to podcasts. Hello there, I'm PF, this is my tape recorder. Coming up, comedian Eddie Izzard claims there's no such thing as an American sense of humor or a British sense of humor or any of that kind of nonsense. There is basically a mainstream sense of humor in every country and a more alternative sense of humor or progressive sense of humor in every country. We'll hear more from Eddie in just a bit. NPR does a terrible job of being a liberal media government mouthpiece. And we rerun what's become our most popular dumb bit ever. Welcome to Facebook. But first, as always, fake news. And now, fake news with me. Maine's ethics panel fined a national anti-gay marriage group more than $50,000 this past Wednesday and ordered it to reveal the donors who backed its efforts to repeal the state's gay marriage law. I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of these pinkos preaching tolerance for homosexuals while at the same time being intolerant to those who just want to be intolerant. Fox News has added actress Stacey Dash to its roster, making the actress-slash-activist a contributor. Fox News' executive vice president of programming Bill Shine said on Wednesday, Dash, an outspoken conservative who has voiced her political views on her Twitter account, including a scathing condemnation of Jay-Z and Beyonce for their Cuba visit last year, will offer cultural analysis and commentary across various daytime and primetime programs. Shine explained that they looked no further on her resume than the word clueless when deciding to hire her. During conversation about her role as the vice chair of the Clinton Foundation at the Town & Country Philanthropy Summit on Wednesday, Town & Country editor-in-chief Jay Fielden jokingly asked Chelsea Clinton what she would do if her baby-to-be grew up to be a Republican. Clinton laughed and responded, I would find that hard to believe. Karl Rove, meanwhile, is already setting up anti-Clinton baby attack ads for the year 2052. I didn't do the math. That may or may not be right. I'm not, I'm not sure. When it was reported that Jimmy Page looked to the opening notes of 1971's Stairway to Heaven, the Led Zeppelin guitarist and the rest of the band, via Warner Music, declined to comment to Bloomberg Businessweek or any other publications. Now as Page conducts a whirlwind publicity tour for the June 3rd re-release of Led Zeppelin's first three albums, Francis Liberation newspaper has put the question to him directly. The group's spirit accuses you of having copied one of their songs for Stairway to Heaven, journalist Guillaume Thion says in the interview, which was published in French. Page wasted no words in his response. That's ridiculous. I have no further comment on the subject except to say that Led Zeppelin is more important to some kids than Jesus. As a book and duck dynasty patriarch Phil Robertson uh, spoke at the Republican Leadership Conference this past Thursday in New Orleans. Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal joined Robertson as a featured speaker at the event, the same governor who said that the GOP has to stop being the party of stupid. But said Jindal later about that statement, it's just so hard not to be... <laughs> After weeks of subtle hints, Space Exploration Technologies Corporation CEO Elon Musk on Thursday unveiled its latest space taxi, the next in a line of spaceships built with NASA made to ferry American astronauts and equipment to the International Space Station without help from Russia. The new space taxi, however, will cost twice as much as the old space shuttle because it will take the long way to the International Space Station, thereby running up the fare. And none of the astronauts will speak English or anything like that. Yeah, that's probably what you, you hear some people say. While on the road to promote his latest film, blended Adam Sandler made an appearance on Norm MacDonald's Norm MacDonald Live podcast and dished on why he wouldn't return to host Saturday Night Live and a departure from the variety scheme. I don't know what that part means. Why should I, Sandler replied when asked why he won't host SNL. I don't know how good it would be. I'm slow now. I don't understand that either, but perhaps he's afraid he might have to actually be funny. And that's been Fake News with me.
Well, there I was enjoying my national public radio, now just known as NPR, of course, the reliable, uh, government-sponsored, liberal mouthpiece uh, for all us progressives, uh, when this happened. According to her, most of the practices told her they didn't take the plan in one way or another. Some would just come out right out and say, we don't take Obamacare. Or the best one was, the doctor takes it here at the practice, but whatever hospital you use that we go to and all do all of our deliveries through does not take that insurance. This is a story on NPR about uh, the, some of the pitfalls of the ACA in Texas, particularly. This young couple uh, opted out of Obamacare because they couldn't find uh, any hospital to take it or they couldn't get consistent health care to the same doctor because uh, they had had trouble finding people that would take the plan. Uh, although what's really weird about this is that they uh, left out this important nugget of information. Well, first of all, uh, earlier in the report, they say this. The Robinsons didn't qualify for Medicaid, and they couldn't afford a $15,000 hospital berth. Now, I'm not 100% sure, but maybe they didn't qualify for Medicaid in Texas <laughs> because of this guy. Texas Governor Rick Perry is opting out of the Medicaid and state insurance portions of the Affordable Care Act. Perry told Fox News host Jenna Lee, Texas will not socialize health care. Medicaid uh, is a failed program. Uh, to expand this program is not unlike uh, adding a thousand people to the Titanic. Except, of course, those extra thousand people would have lived in this case. But anyway, so, all right. So uh, I posted this on Facebook, and I, I got some traction on it, and people wanted to talk about the ACA, and I did not. My point was, what in the hell kind of liberal mouthpiece is NPR? And, of course, it just illustrates this whole nonsensical notion about the liberal media and about NPR being the liberal media, and it's just crazy. Of course, among the uh, many things Newsbusters was whining about this week was uh, Hillary Clinton uh, has a, a new audio book out, and a lot of the morning shows paid attention to it, which was very, very upsetting because they, they would never talk to a conservative lady about her book. Well, here is the big question. Do you ever want to be president of the United States? That certainly isn't on my radar screen right now, but when you consider some of the Wait a second. That, that sounds like Sarah Palin. In my life, I am not one to predict what will happen in a few years. My ambition... It is Sarah Palin. Of course, they probably tried to dummy her up and wouldn't let her criticize the president. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the best, where do you rate Barack Obama? A 4. Okay, well, how about the Today Show? The Today Show is just dripping with liberalism. Let's check out this story. So congratulations, Dad. This is pretty exciting. Well, it's, it's uh, yeah, uh, who would have thought it? <laughs> not me. <laughs> yeah, not me. So you started off with a self-portrait. That's Jenna Bush. She's the daughter of former President George W. Bush. She's a contributing correspondent to the Today Show. She's on all the time. And she's talking to her pops about his artwork. Yep. Yeah, what what the hell kind of liberals is the Today Show? Look, look, look all I'm saying is, is that, you know, whenever you hear these people you know, talking about the, the, the liberal media, and there's this, it's your duty, I think, to point out, you know, things like this, that they interview people like Sarah Palin all the time, that, and Jenna Bush works for the goddamn Today Show. Of course, most of this nonsense comes from news busters, busted, whichever one it is, which is an arm of the Media Research Center, uh, the ironically named, because it says here right on their website uh, that on October 1st, 1987, a group of young, determined conservatives set out to not only prove 
through sound scientific research that liberal bias in the media does exist, blah, blah, blah. Sound scientific research. Again, people who don't really believe in science <laughs> using science to prove a point. Now, of course, they set out to prove through scientific research that there is liberal bias. But, uh, of course, uh, as uh, Endometri and, 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 and as this scientist says, uh, there's, a, there's a problem with that. That should always ring alarm bells, right? Because if you already know the answer to your trial, you shouldn't be doing one. Either uh, you've rigged it by design or uh, you've got enough data so there's no need to randomize people anymore. That is British scientist Ben Goldacre during a TED Talk, which was rebroadcast on NPR's On the Media, who, by the way, are, are good progressives, who, by the way, also point out a lot of times that uh, the, the so-called liberal media, uh, you know, does, does some things wrong, does some missteps, is maybe a little lazy, a little sloppy, uh, if you will. Recommend uh, listening to their program. It is available as a podcast, by the way. Uh, just look for it in your favorite search engine. Anyway, so uh, back to the uh, Media Research Center and their nonsensical uh, scientific approach to uh, the liberal bias in the media. Of course, since they're doing uh, you know, good science, of course, they're also finding plenty of examples of, of conservative bias. And here are some examples right here. People will tell you that the sound effects aren't funny, but I maintain those people are wrong, at least in the proper context. The sound effects are hilarious. Hey, folks, remember this? Dear Joey, getting my hair done. Be back at 3.30. Please go to Lawson's and pick up bread, lunch meat, potato salad, and pop. And if you want... Or this? We have fresh ideas at Red Barn, like a salad bar for you. This is the third time my husband went back to the salad bar. Or how about this? Well, Home Shirts has all of your vintage apparel needs, recalling all the great brands and restaurants of yesteryear, particularly from the cities of Cincinnati, Cleveland, Indianapolis, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and St. Louis, but also from brands around the country. Just head to homeshirts.com and check out all of our vintage apparel needs, including restaurants, stores, great sports teams. Check it out, and when you order specifically from Home Shirts Cleveland, we make a couple of bucks, and we really appreciate it. Merry-go-round. Unique fashions for guys and gals. Eddie Izzard is a comedian who, inspired by Monty Python, left his job in accountancy to pursue stand-up comedy. He gained fame in the 80s and early 90s and now plays to sell-out audiences around the world and performs not only in English, but French and German as well. Here now is our interview with Eddie Izzard. Hello, Eddie. Hi, how are you? Pretty good. Thanks for doing this. This is huge. Not at all. It's welcome. Good to talk to you. Oh, great. So um, well, I know I only have you for uh, a few short minutes here, so we'll kind of get right into the nuts and bolts of it. One thing I was thinking about when I was getting ready for the interview was, um, you know, you're a guy that, inspired by uh, the Pythons and the comedy from the, the late 60s and stuff, got famous in the 80s and going forward. So you'd be a good guy to ask, is there a British and American sense of humor, or is there just people find different stuff funny in any of the English-speaking countries? A very good question. In fact, in all speaking countries, having because I'm now gigging in French and German, um, right. it's humor is human. This is my strong theory, which I feel I'm proving. Humor is human. It is not national. There is no American, British, German sense of humor, uh, Spanish sense of humor. It just doesn't exist. But what there is, 
and you can you can compare this to uh, music, and you can compare it to theatre and uh, film. There is basically a mainstream sense of humour in every country, and a more alternative sense of humour or progressive sense of humour in every country. Uh-huh. So the mainstream comedians will make jokes about sports stars or things, or maybe it's toilet humour or whatever it is. Um, but they'll they'll do the more broad, uh, standard jokes. And then the more alternative progressive humans are more surreal. They're doing layered stuff, jokes that are not even jokes, but unless you realize that they're saying it back to front. Um, and uh, uh, that's how it seems to work. Alternative music seems to be the, the, very similar. Mainstream musicians play around the world to a mainstream kind of audience. Yep. Uh, and then your alternative musicians will play more discordant music, not using the, nas- the, the standard uh, melodic progressions. And uh, so that audience will link up with those performers, the people who've listened to so much music, they'll be like, okay, we know our standard chord progressions, let's see something, somebody play around with it more, and then they become more alternative uh, in their taste. So, so that's it, and the same with independent cinema or fringe theatre. It's, it's the way of the world. So uh, Benny Hill might be a mainstream. He actually had sort of alternative edges, but he was a more mainstream com- comedian. He did a lot of visual stuff, took yes. off in America, as well as Britain, as well as France. He spoke French, this guy. Ah, um, I didn't realize so that. that was a more mainstream thing. And Python is, is your more alternative one, and that's, that's, is, is loved by a niche market around the world. That's, and yeah. uh, I've just taken after them. I remember growing up, um, people you know thought that Monty Python was what British humor was about, and I'm like, no, a lot of people in England don't really fancy it either. <laughs> they had a lot of troubles first when they first started yeah. out, even getting a, a, per- a permanent time slot on BBC. That's exactly. I think first year or two, and when they started getting successful, then apparently the the, uh, the broadcasters started saying, okay, now you can't say this, you can't do that, because yeah, yeah. they didn't have anyone overlooking it in the first couple of seasons. Oh, that's true, yeah. So I, meant, I, I forgot that you, you do uh, comedy in other languages. Do you uh, just uh, translate a lot of your English stuff, or does some of it not translate, and you have to come up with something completely new for you know German-speaking uh, and French-speaking audiences? No, being a sort of a driven person, but actually very lazy, I realized I didn't <laughs> want to come up with new stuff all the time. I want one set that works around the world, a bit like a really good film. You okay. can watch it in Moscow, you watch it in... Cincinnati, it would be the same film. Um, and so I've been for 15 years, maybe even 20 years now, coming up to 20 years, I've been uh, making sure that I'm doing universal humor. If you're talking, I start off talking about human sacrifice, and that's where the birth of extremism, where people said we've got to kill people for gods rather than, you know, do something positive like a, a rain dance or singing or whatever <laughs> it is. And that seems like totally illogical. Why would gods want to kill things that they put on the earth? It doesn't make any sense. So I said that's the birth of extremism or fascism. It came in at that point. And if you say that in Moscow or in London or in Cincinnati or in Los Angeles, everyone goes, oh, yeah, okay, I can, I can see where you're coming from. And I'm talking about ancient gods and, and dinosaurs with guns and, and um, you know, the, the intelligent but silly things that I talk about. And everyone gets it. I just don't, I don't have any British punchlines with, with British right. references that people outside Britain will go, well, what the hell is that thing? I don't know what that thing is. Oh, yeah. So, uh, what, what's the th- what do you like to talk about mostly? Because like I'm I'm drawn to political stuff, say, but not exclusively. But that's kind of the th- you know, the kind of thing I, I like. You know, imp- I'm a big fan of impressions, of course, and things like. That. What th- is there anything you particularly gravitate toward that you find funny, either on stage or off stage? It uh, it can it com- the complete gamut of you know uh, of uh, intelligent life is I've, I've realized is what we're allowed to talk about, and I tend to stay away from. 
um, party political stuff. Um, because if you did something very British, you get to America and go, well, we don't know what you're talking about, and vice versa, the same. Oh, yeah. I do historical political stuff. Anything that's, you know, the death of Caesar, I'm talking about, yeah. is how Caesar, the most ambitious and megalomaniac, megalomaniacal um, leader that we've probably heard of uh, down the ages. Well, actually, I suppose Hitler comes up there too. But uh, did he ever think he'd end up as a salad? The Caesar <laughs> plan to end up as a salad. What the hell is that? I bet he's a bit pissed off. And, and I'm going through the whole idea of him dying on the steps of the Senate with 40 people. It was about 40 people who, who put the knife in and, uh, and him saying, just remember me as a salad. And then I'm going, really? Did he say that? Did I mishear that? We better get a salad going. Um, so, you know, that's intelligent, but stupid. And then you just keep going the logical progression into chicken Caesar salad. Was he working with chickens at the Battle of Alicia? So all the historical facts are true. Yeah. Um, and you, you can get information out on Caesar, and he did end up as a salad. Smash those two together, and that's a perfect landing for me. It's just it's where I want to be. Now, there you go, yeah. And I guess you, you've got a pretty uh, wide berth there because you've got, you know, what, 5,000 years of recorded history you can you can draw from. Exactly. But I can also go back to, I got, on the last show, I was talking about the beginning of time, 4,500 million years ago. Uh, and when did God create that, or was that accidental, or did God just say, I'd do this, and then I'm going to have a big pause between that and humanity, and why did he bring the dinosaurs out, because they were 160 million years of idiots, uh, huge idiots, and, uh, you know, so it's, you've got any, you can anything, you could talk about, I've even got a theory of the entire universe that I, I occasionally throw out, but I haven't made it funny yet, but I think I've got to start throwing it out again. Um, so, yes, and the show's very tight. This is the 24th. America is the 24th country I've got to on this tour. I'm claiming it's the most extensive comedy tour ever. And uh, it's now, and I'm touring in German, in Germany, and in French, in France, and Spanish I've just started doing as well. So, if, or will you, I'm curious, would you, when you go to Montreal, or will you be going to Montreal, and will you do shows in English and French, or just French? I'm, I'm curious. I do. I uh, on this tour, I've already played Canada, so but yes, when I play Montreal, I always do it in English and French. Oh, neat! And uh, do you? F- and I'm also. I'm also. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, carry on. I was going to say, uh, speaking of Montreal, do you have a problem uh, with French-speaking audience? I understand you only because I've had people, my mom in particular, who is French, say that Canadian French is a little hard for uh, French French people to understand sometimes. Well, that could be true, but then I'm doing, uh, I, I learned my French in Paris, so I'm doing Parisian slash English accented French uh-huh. okay. to Montrealians, rather, Quebecois people, other, other, as opposed to the other way around. So instead of me trying to get my ear around the Quebecois accent, which I did find tricky, um, uh, they had to get their accent around me, and uh, uh-huh. I, I try and be as I, I actually, because I did three months in Paris in French, and, I, and um, uh, there was a point where I got really fast, and my, my teachers were saying to me, yes, you are going very fast, but we can't understand what you're saying. You're not articulating clear enough. Uh-huh. So maintenant, je peux parler français pour assez bien pour articuler, c'est nécessaire. I have to hit it really sharply so that I, if you're not understood, it's, it's pointless. So I do try to make sure that I'm getting it right. And the same in German as well. Articulation is very key. Yeah, so I'm uh, curious. I, I've I discovered this little trick, even though I've, I've uh, fortunately uh, it saddens my mother. I've uh, retained very little of my French, but I remember it that this little trick I learned from the movie Firefox for the Clint Eastwood when he's when he's flying the plane and the guy says, "Well, you can't 
think in English and transpose, you have to think in Russian. Then I realized, you know what? When you're trying to speak another language, you have to think in that language. You can't think in English and then transpose. Unless you're running and try to catch a train, you just need to ask somebody something. But if you're having a conversation, you have to think in that language. Is that uh, difficult, when, especially when you're on stage in front of you know a couple thousand people? Or do you do it that way at all? Um, it's, well, in, in my, I would say my foreign languages, at the moment I'm into sort of 200-seater theaters, 300-seater theaters. I'm not yet up to a couple of thousand. So, uh, but I don't, I don't feel there's a big difference in that. The stress is sort of equivalent. Uh, but uh, yes, I agree with you. You have to think in that language. I do remember there was a point in, uh, in France, which is about uh, 14 years ago when I was doing two weeks in France, and I was thinking of the English line, then translating it into French, thinking of the English line, translating it into French. That was incredibly tiring. And you know, you've just got to be able to reach for it in French and get it out. And the weird thing is because I'm doing German as well and started Spanish, um, I, I do these triple. I'm going to the Normandy beaches on uh, the 6th of June, oh, flying out for the American tour to go and perform three shows in three languages in three hours. Wow! In Caen, Normandy, um, and I found that I've done this once before at Yale University. I, t- I tested it out. I did the German show for an hour, then I did the French show for an hour, and I started swearing in <laughs> German in the middle of the French show. So I thought, no, <laughs> hang on, I've got this slightly wrong. You, you reach for the wrong box and. Uh, so it does get tricky. Wow, that's funny. I wonder, how, did did people catch on? Because I, I would imagine that in, in Europe, you have a better chance of people understanding another language than you do, uh, at least in most of North America. Did they did people kind of find that funny that you were swearing in German, or were they kind of like, what, what's going on? Um, in that thing, when I was playing at Yale, you know, everyone who was coming to the German show spoke German. Everyone coming to the French show spoke French. So the okay. fact that in the middle of a Francaise, je parle... Uh, you know, and they, I just thought, hang on, no, it wasn't a key punchline. So yeah, yeah. I just realized, I was going, hang on, no, it's a now, and um, just got the wrong word out. So it was okay. It was all part of the fun of, you know, no one's ever, I don't think anyone's ever done triple shows, uh, the three languages in three hour things. So it's this new thing I'm trying to do. So when you're writing, it, are you a, a sit down and write your act kind of guy, or you did like things come to you when you're walking around the street, you know, the day of the show, and uh, and you kind of maybe work it in later, or try to work it, you know, try to figure it out uh, down the road. How, how does that that process work? Um, I don't write it. Um, I, I'd like to be able to write it out, sort of, you know, sit down and, and knock it out in a typewriter, and I, I struggle with that at the beginning, and I can't do that. I actually sort of develop it on stage. Uh, this show was developed in New York and um, L.A. and San Francisco with two, show, two shows a night, and I would take the old show and have that as backup, and then I would improvise as much as I can to sort of workshop in or verbally uh, sculpt the the show. So that's what I do. And most ideas come on stage. I also have a, some little ideas that, oh, that'd be good to talk about, and I jot that down on the the notes section of my iPhone. And then, so I do have this list, but I have found that when you go from the list to what the show actually ends up, most of the ideas in the show at the end have come on stage, linking from another thing I was talking about. Um, so they just, so they, in, the, in the bath of doing the show, in this sort of warm bath of talking, and what about this, what about that? You suddenly get, oh, what about that as well? And then you get this third idea that you just didn't even, hadn't even written down, and off you go. Ah. PF, we, we, we have to cut in here because okay. we've got a bunch more to do before the day's out. So, Alrighty. one quick 
requested a close-up. Um, right. Yeah, just to wrote, uh, speaking uh, to tie off the end of that one, the uh, the universalness of the comedy. Do you find it easier since you've, you're traveling to all these places, actually, like all over Europe and North America and around the world, to find things that are universal as opposed to someone who may be stuck in one country and thinking, "Well, is this going to work if I go over there or not?" That's uh, a very good question. I uh, I think it's slightly less easy. Um, you, but you don't lose that much. You lose about 10 to 15% of what you could talk about. My example in America, if you had a punchline with Hershey's bars, and, and um, it, they only exist in America. So I hit him with a Hershey's bar, that is not going to work outside America. Whereas I hit him with a Kit Kat, that would work. And yeah. so you've just, you just lose about 15% of your references. Um, you can't do puns, plays on words, you can't do sayings. Um, wolves disguised in sheep's cl- wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, that I had a part of the, in the French show, and I had it uh, les, les moutons, uh, les loups déguisés aux moutons. And uh, I was saying this bit, and I had this whole idiot thing where these wolves disguised as uh, sheep were going and buying smoothies and not paying for them, and doing what's going on here? You got an invoice, and uh, it, it, they don't have the saying in France. So I had this whole premise based on something that didn't exist so you lose sayings plays on words and, and national minor national references you have to go for international stuff big themes dinosaurs human sacrifice <laughs> medieval kings and then they can get there cool all right well, i'll let you go on to the next interview uh thanks for for taking the time really appreciate it you bet thanks very much thanks eddie bye-bye Thanks again to Eddie Izzard for being on the show. Well, as you can probably tell, we didn't have Eddie for as long as we would have liked. We were only supposed to get him for 10. We stretched out to 15. I love the publicist breaking in there for you because that's always fun. But um, weird how that came together. Um, they were anxious for me to do an interview with him for City Beat for a feature piece. And I wrote him back. And I said, geez, I wish I would have known he was coming sooner. We could have done that. But that slot was already taken. Uh, the best I could do for you is uh, like a calendar piece, 150-word calendar piece. And I thought they'd be like, oh, we'll forget it. Because you know, he's, he's a pretty big deal. And, um, and not that he wouldn't have done it, but I just sort of thought, you know, they've got, it wouldn't have been worth their while. But they said, no, no, that's great. We can do that. And then I said we could do the podcast, too. They're, like, terrific. So we got Eddie Izzard. That was pretty huge and, uh, and, and, very, uh, and very nice of him to do that on our little show. All right. So anyway, that leaves a little bit of time here. So I'm going to go through the credits first, and then uh, I will uh, give you a little treat. It's a, a replay of probably our most popular dumb bit ever, uh, the Welcome to Facebook one we did back at episode 118. And uh, I've posted it on SoundCloud. Um, I know I've been lazy about updating the dumb bits on SoundCloud, but um, that one still gets a lot of hits. It's really weird. Um, okay. So first of all, uh, like us on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter at PF66. PF Tape Recorder logo designed by Dan Coble. Follow him at Tiger Dactyl. Dan and Logan's podcast, Magic Potion is available in iTunes. Check for it there. Let me see. Uh, oh, original music for PS Tape Recorder composed and performed by John Veropoulos and Doug O'Connor with a little help from me. Um, see, I believe that is all of the uh, business we have as far as the credits go. So let's get here now um, to, I guess I, I would, as I said before, uh, one of our probably most popular dumb bits ever. This is Welcome to Facebook. An itch you can't scratch. A smell you can't sniff. Welcome to Facebook. Joan posts, I'm continuing to train for my first 5K. It's going to feel great 
Crossing that off my bucket list. Ted Ernst comments, Good luck, Joan. Becky Tawanda comments, I ran my first 5K in Desert Bluffs back in June. I almost didn't make it back. I finished with an awesome time. But I almost didn't make it back. Anara Snell comments, You can do it, Joan. Old Woman Josie posts, I lost 150 pounds on the Akai Berry Diet, and you can too. Because you ironically like Fox News, the American Enterprise Institute, and John Stossel's mustache fan page, Facebook also recommends the Mitt Romney page. You should like the Mitt Romney page. A meme with actor Gene Wilder, as Willy Wonka says, Tell me again how you pay for groceries with food stamps, but have an iPhone? Eric Stornacker comments, Why do all poor people have iPhones? I don't have an iPhone. Dirk Westenberg comments, These people on food stamps should not have iPhones. Why isn't the liberal media reporting this? Joan posts to old woman Josie's wall, Josie, I think your account has been hacked. Possibly by angels. Possibly by gremlins. Edgar Muria posts, To all my FB friends, I want to stay privately connected with you. However, with the recent changes in FB, the public can now see activities in any wall. This happens when our friends hit like or comment. Automatically, their friends see our posts too. Unfortunately, we cannot change this setting by ourselves because Facebook has configured it this way. So, I need your help. Only you can do this for me. Please place your mouse over my name above. Do not click. A window will appear. Now move the mouse onto Friends, also without clicking. Then down to Settings, click here, and a list will appear. Remove the check on Comments and Likes by clicking on it. By doing this, my activity amongst my friends and my family will no longer become public. Many thanks. Paste this on your wall so your contacts can follow suit. That is, if you care about your privacy. Robert Ulrichson comments, Edgar, this will only keep your friends from seeing your stuff. Cynthia Harnsfeld comments, Done. Scott Walnocker comments, Done. John Fornessy comments, Thanks for posting this. Done. Rob Ulrichson comments, This doesn't work. Here's a link from a social media expert explaining why. Debbie Ornsdale comments, Done. Pete Norsash comments, I had no idea. Done. Clem Stratensfierstein posts, Members of Congress get lifetime pay. See the link below. Like if you think this is outrageous. Debbie Ornsdale comments, why don't we 
get lifetime pay. Rob Ulrichson comments, This is another internet rumor. Here is a link to an Urban Legends website debunking it. Edgar Muria comments, It's time to fire all of those people in Washington. Robin Smitherick comments, No wonder we are so far in debt. This is where we should start cutting the budget. Ross Bagdadalorian comments, I am going to find out who my congressman is and write them. Jeff Rebus posts, I love when people post videos on Facebook. I do not like Tumblr. Facebook is so much better than Tumblr. I don't understand Tumblr at all. Old Woman Josie posts, Friends, my account was hacked. I did not lose 150 pounds on the Akai Berry diet. I only weigh 140 pounds. If I lost 150 pounds, I would not only disappear, but quite likely would be swallowed up into an alternate universe. Stay tuned next for reasoned debate, nostalgia, and inspiring quotes which may or may not have come from famous people. Good night, Facebook. Good night. Okay, that's uh, Welcome to Facebook, our most popular dumb bit ever, and uh, that's all for this week, except to say so long and thanks for listening. <laughs>